Welcome back to Kidney Transplant Conversations, our series of discussions with people experiencing this life-changing miracle, either as a patient, a caregiver, or healthcare provider. I'm Rolf Taylor, your host and series producer, and all views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants. Today, we welcome a doctor and researcher who not only performs kidney transplants, but three years ago received a heart transplant giving him a uniquely complete perspective, which we will discuss today. He's also a pioneer in extending our knowledge of transplant medicine, and he leads the Health Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Initiative at his Transplant Institute at NYC Langone Health Center, which he'll also tell us about today. Please welcome Dr. Robert Montgomery to Kidney Transplant Conversations. As chair of the Department of Surgery and director of the NYU Langone Transplant Institute, he oversees a diverse team of medical and surgical specialists who provide a wide variety of surgery and transplantation services. And in 2010, he was credited in the Guinness Book of Records with performing the most kidney transplants in one day as part of his pioneering work to set up domino paired donation, which is a way of getting around a donor and recipient having incompatible tissue or blood types. So Dr. Montgomery, you yourself have firsthand experience of a, of a transplant, although not kidney transplant, it was a heart transplant, but it means that as a surgeon helping kidney transplant patients, you really know that journey very well. Well, well, thanks, Ralph. I, I, I first just want to say that I really appreciate speaking to you today and exploring some of these topics. So yes, um, I, I did have a, um, a heart transplant in, in 2018. I have a, a genetic um, heart disorder, so you know I, I've been aware of this um, and been dealing with it for uh, over 30 years now. Um, but it really did come to a head, and I had some life-threatening near-death experiences prior to uh, receiving my transplant. And so, you know, I, I've been a patient really for probably as long as I've been a doctor. I found out about this when I was. Um, in my uh, intern year at Johns Hopkins. But I, I have to say that actually, you know, becoming a transplant patient is, is a new thing. And it's been an amazing look into the experience of my patients. As you mentioned, I'm a, a transplant surgeon and run a, uh, a transplant institute. So that's been, you know, a extremely valuable life's learning experience. And in fact, um, ironically, my, my three-year anniversary was yesterday. So, oh, it, so congratulations. It, well, thank you. Yeah. It's very exciting. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I feel a little bit like I'm living on borrowed time. So, uh, each year, each year, I think on my birthday, I celebrate getting older, um, which I think, you know, most people don't really look at it that way, but uh, I certainly do. You know, I had a I had a conversation with a transplant recipient a while back, and uh, I was complaining about the fact that it was my birthday, and I felt like I was getting old. And she looked at me and she said, "Yes, but Rolf, what's the alternative?" Right. And I thought, you know, obviously there's a different um, perspective when you've had a transplant, and uh, you you're, you're much more consciously aware of of, of time passing. It's a reset. There's no question. You've been a surgeon for a long time. You've been a transplant surgeon for a long time. And then you have a transplant. What are a couple of things that 
changed in terms of your understanding of what patients experience as a result of of uh, having the experience yourself? Just living through the complexity of really kind of dealing with doctor's appointments, the tests, the blood draws, the medications, the organizing the medications, being sure that your nutrition is good, that you are exercising. I mean, those things seem so much more important now. There is this sense that you've been given a gift and you've got to take care of it. That is a, I would say, a much bigger set of responsibilities than I ever appreciated that my patients, you know, had to carry around with them every day, in addition to everything else they have to do. Life's complicated. You know, this adds a whole different layer of complexity. And for you as a physician, uh, these things become somewhat routine because uh, because you have practice. But for the patients, it's always for the first time. It is. You know, there's, there, there is, though, something about talking about the different medications and tests and everything and then actually experiencing it yourself. I'm embarrassed to say that as I sat down in front of my 35 different medications the first uh, day or two after my transplant, I couldn't necessarily pick out which pill was, you know, my Celsep versus uh, my calcium supplement. So we don't walk in the shoes. We educate the patients about what's involved, but it's different when you actually have to do it. I can really imagine. So I wanted to turn to a, to to our theme for today's discussion, and you've just really been talking about how complex the process is, but preparing yourself for the fact that your post-transplant world, it's not going to go back to the same normal from before you had a kidney disease. In other words, the new normal is full of challenges that will always remain, and it's important to mentally prepare for this. The different organs come with a, a, a different set of challenges, I would say. You know, my heart disease evolved like pretty slowly over a long period of time, which is more of what you see with kidney disease, but not as typical for actually for heart disease. You know, oftentimes with liver disease, heart disease, lung disease, you know, there, there, there may be a very accelerated course where, where people are feeling well and then suddenly they're facing their mortality and then they're given a new organ. The time course can be very short. With kidney disease, it tends to be more prolonged. So patients will be aware in many cases, not all cases, but many cases that their kidneys are you know, gradually failing. Some people will be on dialysis for years before they actually receive their, their kidney transplant. And so there's a certain amount of preparation that, you know, mentally the, of being ill. And then, um, you know, from that standpoint, generally when they receive their transplant, it feels like a big upgrade, but, and they don't necessarily think back, you know, many years to what it felt like to feel quote unquote normal. They compare how they feel after the transplant, maybe to how they felt right before. And I think the vast majority, just about everyone that I've ever taken care of does see it as a tremendous upgrade, but it does come with its own set of challenges. I think we try to prepare the patients for that, but it's hard to hear that. I think when you're sick, all you're thinking about is I want to feel better than this. But the idea that, you know, you can snap a finger, put an organ in and you have a normal life again 
it may be something that many of us think is how it is, but it really isn't. You know, that can be a jolt to people, I think. What are some of the most uh, challenging things that, that come to mind when you're thinking about that new normal? I think there are, there are a number of things. First of all, if you can imagine, you know, being on dialysis, so three days a week, you know, up to six hours with each session, and some people get home dialysis every day, just the amount of time is spent with this therapy. It's, it's really a, an amazing thing to kind of wrap your brain around. And it's hard to stay fit. It's hard to feel well. It's hard to keep your diet and exercise. You know, you're, you're having to restrict a lot of things in your diet when you're on dialysis. It's almost impossible to add muscle. It's very difficult to exercise and to do many of the things that we would do uh, if we weren't ill. Um, and so a lot of our patients are really compromised by the time they get their transplant. And they've had this prolonged period of illness. And so they, that is still there. Getting your strength back, undergoing physical rehab, that's one of the challenges that's sort of immediate. And if you don't start feeling better, you know, or you are unable to get on that positive slope, I think then, you know, everything seems difficult. Just the disability that occurs with chronic disease is, I think, probably one of the biggest hurdles. And then there's the medications, you know, which are meant to prevent you from rejecting the organ, have the effect of disabling your immune system to some extent, and the risks that, you know, are, are involved in terms of infections, susceptibility to certain types of cancers that come along with that in the current era that we're in, the concern about COVID and, and the effects of um, the, the, worst, the worst prognosis um, if one acquires COVID. And then there are the side effects of the drugs can worsen hypertension, diabetes can bring on new onset diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and then a lot of kind of quality of life effects that they can have, things like tremor, insomnia, problems concentrating, diarrhea, you know, really significant change in bowel habits, things like that. These are all potential side effects. Not everybody has, certainly very few people have all those side effects. Some people have one or two, um, but some people have more than that. But most people have something that, you know, either affects their lifestyle or certainly their risks um, in the post-transplant era. And as a surgeon yourself, um, any side effects of the various medications you're taking could be very challenging. So I imagine you have to be very careful about making sure you're taking your medications at the right times and, and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. All that stuff is, is supremely important. You know, I am super like, this is like religion for me. I am, I feel as though, in a in a way, maybe in my own mind, be better at this than anybody else, you know, set a good example for my patients. I've actually in um, three years now, knock on wood, I've, I've never missed one of my medications. You know, I, I exercise um, every day. I walk over 10,000 steps and, you know, and I'm pretty careful about my diet as well. So these things I think become harder as time rolls on, but um, it's important to remain very, very disciplined because I think it really does make a difference. And I did read that quite a significant proportion 
of post-transplant patients don't actually manage to get back to their old jobs. What's going on there? What are the reasons for that? Yeah, uh, it's it's really pretty. The, the, the statistics are staggering, actually. For patients who have CKD who, who receive a transplant, there's, there's only about a t- 20% of them that return to, uh, to work, to full-time employment. And if they come to the transplant on disability, that falls to about 5%. I think there are a lot of different reasons for that. I've already discussed one, which is just the fact that, you know, the time course usually of CKD um, is prolonged. And the, because the allocation system for kidney transplantation is primarily driven by waiting time. In other words, patients who receive the kidneys are those who have waited the longest. They've been on dialysis for all those years for the most part. And, and once they, you know, get their transplant, they're already fairly debilitated. And again, if they don't get early intervention, don't kind of turn that tide, I think, you know, with all the things they have to do in terms of their medications, their doctor's appointments, their tests, their, you know, missing work and um, that sort of thing, um, it's really hard for them to maintain a full-time job, first of all. And if they are already on disability, the idea of giving up their disability for an uncertain, you know, work life, um, again, that can be interrupted at any time by a rejection or an infection or a hospitalization. And I think it particularly is challenging for people who, you know, work by, by the clock. I think if you're dependent on your job, having to show up every day, you know, on time for work, and that's monitored and that sort of thing, it becomes really complicated. Uh, to maintain a transplant effectively. So um, I think all of those things, you know, and some of them are built in, some of them are systemic, built into our, cooked into our um, our disability system. Um, if you let go of your, your, your disability, then um, it's really hard to get it back. And, and again, um, with all of these challenges that transplant patients can face after their transplant, um, it's it, it seems like too big a risk to a lot of people. And then right now we have this extra dimension to consider, and that is the, the COVID-19 pandemic having an impact both before and after transplant. Uh, I, I saw some data recently that uh, chronic kidney disease is one of the highest risk factors for hospitalization um, with COVID. What's the likely cause of that? So I think everybody knows that there are certain Comor- what we call comorbid conditions or, or different conditions that people have, including high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, diabetes, um, and chronic kidney disease that um, predispose um, one toward a worse prognosis uh, when, when they um, become infected with uh, COVID-19. I think one of the more um, important um, comorbid conditions is uh, CKD. Why that is, I think it's still you know hotly debated, but we know that it correlates with um, a worse outcome. You know, I, I work in in New York, and during the surge um, in March uh, in April of 2020 um, in New York, 
um, every, everybody in the country was aware that we were just inundated with cases of this novel virus um, at the really at the beginning of the pandemic um, in the US. And our transplant patients um, and our CKD patients did very poorly um, when they were hospitalized with COVID-19. In fact, early in that surge, transplant patients had a 25% mortality um, when they uh, uh, were symptomatic in, in the hospital. So it was a really scary time and, and particularly for those who um, were immunosuppressed. And that unfortunately hasn't gone away because of the problem that um, we faced with our response um, to the vaccine in the setting of being immunocompromised. And um, for the same reasons why we don't reject the foreign kidney, we have trouble mounting an immune response to um, COVID-19 or the vaccine. It's still very much with us in, in, in the transplant community. Um, we haven't solved this problem yet. We have lots of people who are still isolating and um, who are, have really been you know, cut off um, when other people have started to take their masks off and you know, sort of get back into life. So this is a big issue. It continues to be almost two years later now. And we need to ha really have a plea for understanding from, from people who may be vaccinated and uh, may not realize that there are, there are still people out there, they're wearing masks because they're immunocompromised or they, they have some medical reason why they need to do that. Um, there, was a, there was a horrible story about a family who were asked to leave a restaurant because they insisted on wearing a mask in the restaurant. And the uh, and the policy was no masks in in the restaurant. Right. Um, and uh, a little understanding wouldn't go amiss in that situation. Yeah, a, a little understanding could go a long way in many aspects of our society right now. There are about 10 million people who um, are immunocompromised in the U.S. and um, still really are trapped by COVID-19 and live in fear, and also are aware that their mortality rate is higher um, than, than the general population and an order of magnitude higher. And, and, um, and that, I think, does really warrant some understanding and some uh, empathy um, with, their, with the situation that we face. So if my math is correct, that's one in 30 people. That's probably around one in 30 people, a very significant number. Yeah. And that's not all transplant patients. People can be immunocompromised for a lot of other reasons. They're getting cancer therapy. They've had a Crohn's disease or, you know, some other autoimmune disease where they're receiving uh, immunosuppression. But uh, yeah, it's about 10 million people. I'd like to switch gears just a little and talk about something that I know you're very passionate about and committed to, and that is fostering a diverse and inclusive culture in your own workplace. Um, in fact, you are the diversity, equity, and inclusion leader at NYU Langone. Yeah, so there's a group of us that, you know, have been involved in a pilot project to um, really develop a strategy for DEI, um, you know, in our institution. So DEI really in healthcare has two at least two facets to it. So one is the environment and the workplace, the culture, right? And the other are our patients. So it's the healthcare providers and, and the patients. And, 
And it's important in, you know, in both of those realms. And so you have to think about that. It's a little more complex than the usual um, workplace that, you know, maybe a, a corporate structure where when you talk about DEI, you're really talking about the workforce. We also have to think about health equity and, and what we do, you know, um, with our patients and, and, um, and, 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 you know, are our patients getting equal care? Are they having equal outcomes? Um, and so it's, you know, it has that additional level of complexity. So if you want to just first look at the, you know, the workforce and, and my feelings about um, what we need to do, um, again, we have, have brought together um, a group of chairs of different departments, as well as different facets of, or aspects of our um, organization that are really um, entrusted and empowered um, to come up with you know, our policies on um, DEI. And, and, and we have worked out you know, how, how we want to think about DEI in the workplace. It's, it's been really a, a, a fascinating, wonderfully fulfilling process. And, you know, I think we all feel that this is a, a, an important moment in time and that what we really want to do is translate the ideas into policies because policies have durability that continues beyond a moment in time. And you know, I think the foundation under all of this is that there is a broad consensus and lots of data showing that a diverse workforce is a dynamic, innovative workforce that, you know, is better equipped to accomplish the mission and the goals of the organization. So how do we create that? How do we create? How do we make people feel welcome and um, that they're on an equal footing um, with everyone else. So I think the first thing you really have to think about is the culture. So what, what kind of culture do you want to have? And we've embraced really um, sort of a, a trifecta of, of important ideas um, that define our culture. And those are empathy, the idea that we should care about each other. This, is, this has been a really tough time in the history of um, humankind to you know, go through what we've all been going through and the isolation and, and people you know, dying, people we know, family members. And it's really important to be a good colleague and a supportive colleague and to care about the people that you work with. Equity, everybody should be treated the same. And we should be very conscious of biases, unconscious biases of, of what the hazards are of the workplace in terms of a history, you know, of really not having true equity. And then excellence, you know, we are devoted to being the best that we possibly can be and the best, you know, in the world at delivering healthcare to our patients. You know, those are the things, and, and I remind people in the organization about, you know, the main tenets of our culture as often as they'll listen to me. But then you really have to then think about 
beyond culture, what are your processes? How do you hire people? Are, are you incorporating DEI you know, into a policy for hiring? Um, you know, what's the process? And that process should be written down. It should be something that is discoverable, not in somebody's mind, but, you know, something that people have agreed upon and then written down. How are you retaining people? How, you know, how, how are you uh, retaining underrepresented uh, minorities in medicine um, in your workforce to maintain the, you know, all of the benefits of a diverse um, workplace? How are you um, promoting your faculty? Is it, you know, uh, it, it, is everybody on a, a fair and even playing field? So these are the critical, I, I think, aspects of the organization. And then the other side of this is health equity. And you've got to have metrics. You, gotta, you, you have to know your data. So we, for instance, I'll give you an example. We've looked at unrepresented communities in whatever you can think about, let's say heart transplantation, right? So who are we transplanting? Like, and um, how does that compare to, um, you know, other transplant centers? How does that compare to the, the numbers of, of people who actually have those diseases? Are we de delivering heart transplantation in an equitable way? And then what are the outcomes? Are there disparities in outcomes? Are there disparities in terms of who gets put on the waiting list? When they get put on the waiting list? Is the, is the disease much more advanced in certain communities, underrepresented communities? And so those kinds of things, we have dashboards, we're creating metrics, and we're looking at them you know, on a very objective dashboard where we can really see where we are. If you don't know where you are, you, you can't know where you want to be, right? You've got to let the, the data tell the story. Right. The data tells you what's happening. It doesn't necessarily tell you why it's happening. So you've got to dig a little bit deeper for that. You know, there's a whole field of, you know, the social determinants of health, right? And so you have to be aware of, you know, what that is about too. And so one of the things we just integrated into, you know, we have these, these traditional sessions we call mortality and morbidity, where we look at, at outcomes that, you know, weren't what we had expected. And why was that? We, and we've always thought about that from a medical standpoint, you know, what was missed? What, you know, what could we have done differently? But we're now doing um, M&M looking at the social determinants of health. So what it, was there some misunderstanding that had to do with language or a misunderstanding of, of, of that, that person's environment, you know, that, that their, their community, how the, the, the norms in the community, the, the way the family is structured that we missed that made a difference, you know, that a, a difference that we, we would not want to have happen. And so all of these things really have to be thought about. So you've got a very intentional culture built around, let me see if I can remember the three. So you, you've got empathy, as, and that really is the starting point for so many things. It makes me think of human-centered design. Empathy is the starting point for that as well. Right. You've, got, you've got equity, and you've got excellence, and you've built that into a dashboard so you have um, a data reflection of what's going on. 
did you have to start from scratch with that? Or is there a growing body of knowledge that is shared among hospitals about how to go about creating that kind of intentional culture? I would say that, you know, there were people who were really thinking about all of these things um, for many years. And then there was the lightning bolt of George Floyd's murder, the impact that that had, you know, in a very global sense, I think accelerated a lot of activities that were already happening. I mean, this isn't a completely new frontier, obviously. Um, This has been um, something that people have been thinking about for a long time. But um, I think there is, does seem to be more of a, uh, an, an urgency. And we just want to make sure that that's not something that is a short-lived urgency. And again, I think that really speaks to being deliberate and, and being thoughtful about implementation and, and creation of policies. And you mentioned about creating a culture where you're, you're hiring, in a, you're hiring um, diversity and that's great for patients. Patients um, do well when they, they're communicating with someone who looks like them. But my understanding is that you do have um, a problem with higher burnout rates in some, in some groups. What, what's going on there? Retention, particularly of underrepresented um, minorities you know, in medicine um, is challenging. I think we have a pretty diverse uh, you know, group of medical students. We have maybe a drop-off in diversity when it goes to the level of residents and trainees. And then, you know, the the pipeline sort of narrows even further in academics in particular you know, after training and at the faculty level and then at the retention level. And I think one has to think about both ends, you know, of the pipeline. And you have to have examples, um, I think, in the organization of really talented, underrepresented people who are in leadership positions. Because, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? Um, And if you don't have those examples, I think, that people will, and they don't, and, and they don't feel, um, you know, completely a part of the community. They feel that there's, you know, um, a bar- there are barriers to them being that that feeling of inclusiveness. You're going to lose those people in the process. You know, there are other options in medicine. You can go into private practice. You can go into different types of workforces, you know, as a physician. And I think we lose a lot of talented people, you know, in academic medicine because um, we can't really um, retain them um, and, 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 and have them feel that positive sense that they, they're going to advance in the organization and they're going to do um, the kinds of things that we all, you know, want want to do with our careers. So I, I think, you know, the way we hire people is really important, but also, you know, that they're given opportunities to, um, 
to advance and to um, end up in leadership positions. And, um, and, and that then strengthens the whole system. I think an equitable you know, workplace um, it d- d- has the effect of, of producing less burnout and, and dispiritedness about you know, what the options are for that person. Well, look, we're we're uh, we're nearly out of time, and uh, you've shared um, you've shared information um, from a patient perspective, um, from a physician perspective, and also as a, a leader for equity. So, thank you so much um, for for all that you've shared with us today. Well, uh, thank you. One last question is, you know, I, I it, it does seem like we're on the road to really positive change and impacting some of these disparities. Are you confident that we're on the road to sustainable change? That is dependent on each one of us, you know, and, and again, you know, the, that, that we don't miss the moment and that it's not just a moment. I think when, you know, a lot of my family members and, you know, extended family, you know, after George Floyd's murder were really distraught dispirited. My message was always, well, you know, okay, it seems like, you know, there's not much hope here, but um, we, each one of us can start, you know, locally, we can do what each one of us can do day to day to make a difference. And, and, and then if we're all doing that, that message will will amplify and resonate and be durable. You know, if we feel completely overwhelmed by the situation, which I think many people did um, this during the past year, you know, our Martin Luther King said something about um, our society, it's, it's a 10 day uh, cycle and people forget, you know, people forget they, um, things move on now our current news cycles are even less, you know, that was said many years ago. Um, and so we, you know, it's just, I, I think it's a commitment to incorporating this um, into your life and to live it. And if each one of us does that, um, you know, the total will be greater than the sum of the parts. So I, I, I'm optimistic. That's a that's a great that's a great place to end. I think um, you mentioned George Floyd, and um, one of my strongest memories of that whole situation was uh, was his his daughter um, saying that my, my daddy changed the world. Yep. So we have some responsibilities to uh, to follow through on that. That's right, Dr. Yep. Montgomery. Thank you so much. We look forward to you coming back to the podcast at some point in the future. Great, I'd love to. Thanks again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider sharing it with others and subscribing on any of the leading podcast platforms and smart speakers. We also thank the participants and advisors who helped create this podcast and our underwriter, Veloxis Pharmaceuticals. Join us again soon for more kidney transplant conversations. Until next time, take care and be well. Copyright Project Advocacy 2021.